Now, we've come to what we rather facetiously call three-eyed John. We said that one of the ways of dividing these epistles is done by a very fine black preacher in the South years ago. I heard him talk about one-eyed John, two-eyed John, three-eyed John. And I don't know of a better way of remembering the epistles than remembering them like that. And you'll never forget it if you keep that in mind. So that we have here now three-eyed John. Now we have seen that John wrote his first epistle, and it's the belief of many expositors now, and I say many, I probably should say some expositors, that John wrote his epistles last, not the book of Revelation. And I'm rather inclined to that viewpoint. And that means that these epistles were written close to the close of the first century, somewhere in the 90s, 90 to 100 A.D. And that'd be very difficult, I think, to date them exactly. And he wrote all three epistles probably very close together. I don't think that there's very much difference between one and the other. Now, we have seen that he has emphasized the fact that the family of God is held together by love and that the little children are to love one another. And John makes it very clear, if they don't, then they're not God's children because children have a love for those that are in their family. That's the normal thing even in a natural relationship down here on the earth. Now, in the second epistle, though, he put up that tremendous warning that there are apostates today. There are many antichrists abroad, and there are many deceivers, and that a child of God is not to love them. They're not to be concerned with their welfare in the sense of entertaining them in their home. They actually are to keep a very close account and make sure that those they entertain and those they support are true to the Word of God. That is, they believe in the deity of Christ. They believe that he was God manifest in the flesh. John says the Word became flesh. And he had already told us the Word is God. God manifest in the flesh. God dwelling, tabernacling in human flesh. And that is the thing that is essential. And until a person believes that, of course, you don't have a Savior. If he's just a man, and that's all, as this thing Jesus Christ Superstar said, he's just a man. May I say to you, if he's just a man, we don't have a Savior. And there's no reason to remember his birth. There's no reason to remember his death or his resurrection if he's just a man. It's all important that we recognize that he was God manifest in the flesh and that his work on the cross was a work that has power to save us, and that there is power in the blood because of who he is and the fact that he died and rose again and that he rose bodily. And therefore, those who deny that, they are not to be extended the fellowship of the church or the support of the church. 
And John went so far in the last epistle, he says that if you even bid him Godspeed, that would mean you'd help him on his way, give him support, then you're partaker of his evil deeds, that you're a partner with him. Therefore, it behooves a child of God to know who he supports. Now, we come to the third epistle, and there is a similarity. This letter is similar to John's second epistle in some ways. First of all, in that it's personal in character, very personal. And it carries the same theme of truth. Truth now, again, is all important. In fact, when truth and love come in conflict, truth must survive. That means the false teacher, you're not to love him. And love means to have a concern and support. That's the way love is expressed. It's walking in love or walking in the truth. Well, walking in the truth is all important. Now, however this letter differs, otherwise it deals with personalities. And we'll go in to see that in just a moment. And in the second epistle, John says that truth is worth standing for. Now, in this third epistle, he's going to say that truth is worth working for. Someone has put it like this, my life and God. My life in God, that's salvation. My life with God, that is communion and fellowship. But my life for God is service. So that in this epistle, it is my life for God. And it has to do with walking and working in the truth. And that is all important. Love can become very sloppy, and it can become misdirected, and it can be certainly misunderstood. Now, the letter here is addressed, by the way, to a believer in the early church by the name of Gaius. And Gaius was a beloved brother in the church. In fact, the matter is, I think here about four times uh, calls him beloved. He is a beloved brother, the one that John knew, and John loved him in the Lord. And he writes now the letter to this brother, and he apparently is in some local church. And here he commands Gaius and urges him to extend hospitality to the true teachers of the Word. And Gaius had that reputation that he did that. In other words, he was not only walking in love, he's walking in the truth, because it was only the true teachers that he supported. Then we're going to meet another brother here by the name of Diotrephes, and he was one in the same church with Gaius who loved to have the preeminence. You probably met Diotrephes. There's one in most churches, the fellow who likes to have the preeminence. And then there is the third brother here, Demetrius. And he is another wonderful Christian. He hath good report of all men and of the truth itself. And you see, men here are judged in their relationship to the truth. And that is very important to see. Now, the thing that we have here that John expresses to him here as we're going to see 
a wish. He says, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. And apparently Gaius was a brother that was not in good health at all. But even with that handicap, why he had entertained these itinerant Bible teachers in that day. And as we said last time, that there were going around many of them in that day teaching the Word of God and doing missionary work. And Gaius had entertained them, but he was not only a large-hearted man, not only did he walk in love, but he walked in truth, and he tested them. And in spite of his bad health, why he was able to be very active in this. So that he's the first man that we look at here, and I think if we'll take a look at him, why it will tell us actually more about this very wonderful epistle. I took years ago in a sermon, I preached a sermon on the subject, you will find them in the yellow pages. And I took two men out of here. And the reason that I did take out of here Diotrephes and Demetrius, and I put with them Demas, by the way, that Paul spoke about in Colossians 4:14. He had been a fellow laborer with Paul, but he had gone back. He loved the world, and he had departed from Paul. So that actually you have mentioned here, and I've put together in the sermon, of course, three that each one began with a D, Demas, Diotrephes, and Demetrius. Well, I probably should have put Gaius in there, and if it had been Gaius, I'm sure I would have put it in. But he's the first one mentioned here, and you would have two wonderful saints in the church, and you'd have two that are not so wonderful. In fact, they're the very opposite. And this shows you, at the close of the first century, how believers made out. How were they holding out? Did they all become martyrs? Were they all paragons of virtue? Were they all worthy followers of Christ? Were they, in turn, worthy examples of the faith? Now, the millions who turned to Christ in the first three centuries, how did the average believer turn out? Well, you would have two that are outstanding, men of God. And you'd have two that were not outstanding, but they were not standing at all. They were doing anything but standing for the truth. And you find them, I would say, in the yellow pages of the Roman Empire. That is, if you could get a hold of the book of the first century, you'd probably find really these four men. I'm just bringing in Demas here, but Diotrephes and Demetrius are mentioned in this epistle. And in the yellow pages, you know, today, due to modern advertising methods, they tell you you can find it in the yellow pages. doesn't make any difference whether you want to purchase anything from an art vard to a zebra, from an atom splitter to a zimometer, or a... Uh, a Bacchus to a Zygote. You can find them in the yellow pages. Well, here in the Word of God, you can find two men that ought to be in the yellow pages because they were yellow. And you have one man or two men that really stood for the faith of God. Now, I'm not talking about Demas at all. 
Paul could say, He hath forsaken me. What a, a tragic note. and What an awful thing to have to be said of Demas. He was a professing Christian, not a genuine Christian. Now we come here to this third epistle of John, and we're talking about Gaius. And I'm reading now the first verse about Gaius. And we're told the elder, and uh, again John adopts the term elder, and it could refer as to his age. And he was in his 90s at this time, and certainly he was a presbyter, an elder in that sense as to age. He certainly was a senior citizen at this time. And also, it speaks of an officer that was in the early church. And certainly, he could claim that. He could have claimed more. He could have said, I'm an apostle. But he doesn't do that. He's a friend. You don't write that way to your friend. At least the friends I write to that are very personal. I write to several fellows I was in school with. They're old man now. I'm the only one that's managed to stay young. But they've gotten old. I call each one of them by name, their first name. And when I sign my name, I don't sign my name like I sign it to the letters I write to you. I don't mention the word doctor at all to those fellows. They'd laugh at me. I sign my name Vernon or Mac. I was called Mac when I was in college and seminary. And I go by that appellation, and so I just sign that way. And John's writing to some personal friends in these last two epistles that he wrote. And he just says, he's the elder unto the well-beloved Gaius. And I love that. Here is a saint in the early church. He was well-beloved, loved him, whom I love in the truth. Now, immediately we're told that Gaius was sound in doctrine. Gaius accepted the deity of Christ. Gaius is a man that stood for the truth. And he not only stood for the truth, but he worked for the truth. And that, of course, means that here is a man that walked and worked in love. He manifested that. You've got to think right if you're going to act right. That's true, I think, in any sphere today. Now, we go on, and I come back to verse 2, which I mentioned before, and we read it again. Beloved, again, John evidently thought a great deal of him. John was very close to him. John says to him, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul Now, very frankly, makes it very clear that he wants him to prosper, not only financially, not only materially, and this man apparently was a man of means, but he says, I want you to prosper in your health. Apparently, he was not a well man. And that you might prosper also in his soul, that he might grow spiritually, you see. There are a lot of Christians today that they are actually sick spiritually, but they've got good health physically, but they have pretty bad health spiritually. And it's certainly well for a child of God 
to have both. Good health physically is wonderful to have. And many of us didn't appreciate it until we lost it. But good health spiritually. By the way, we called attention to this back in First Peter, that what health is to the body, holiness is to the spiritual life of the believer. Healthy, spiritually. That is holiness. Growing in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. And so the graciousness of Gaius and his walk in the truth. And many of these traveling evangelists and missionaries of that day reported to John. They said, My, I tell you, when you go to the church where Gaius is one of the leaders in the church, very wonderful man. He's not only a man of means, but a very generous man. I was entertained in his home. Now, you see, in that day, they didn't put him in a Howard Johnson or a Ramada Inn because there wasn't any. Now, I believe if there'd been one, that's where they would have put them. But the custom in that day was when a man came to town, generally the little inn was a flea-bitten place, dirty, and many times a very sinful place. And some of our motels and hotels have become that way today, as you well know. Now he says here in verse 3, "...for I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth." Now, this is very important to see here. The truth actually is the doctrine and the teaching of the apostles. And the word thee here, in many places it's not included. In some places it's included where it ought not to be, and it should be just truth here, which walkest in truth, which refers not only to doctrine, but also to his conduct. You see, the mark of the believer was, in that day, truth which was dominant. That was the summum bonum of a Christian, whether he's walking in the truth or not, or walking in the light. That was all important. As we said in the first epistle, it wasn't how you walked, it's where you walk that's important. Are you walking in the truth? Now, walking in the truth also means walking in the right conduct or walking in love. And that means love of the brethren. So that the brethren were coming, those that were out and had a teaching ministry in the early church. They would come into Gaius' town and to his church. And his home was wide open to those true brethren of the faith. And he had a spiritual discernment that he could tell who was the genuine and who were not. Well, after all, all you had to do is to make sure about their relationship to the person of Jesus Christ. What think you of Christ is the test. You cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him. You must think rightly of him in order to be right in everything else. And these brethren were saying, Brother Gaius over there, he tested us out. He found out whether we believe in the deity of Christ. He found out whether we believed in the virgin birth, whether Christ died a redemptive death upon the cross, whether he was raised bodily from the grave. And when he found out we did believe those things, 
then he opened his home and received us and discovered whether we had a love for the brethren or not. And then his heart was opened to us. What a marvelous testimony Gaius had. Now, John says in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And that is a great comfort. That is actually wonderful encouragement. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And these were ones that John had led to the Lord, and to hear that his converts out over the area of Asia where he had been, he became pastor of the church in Ephesus, to learn when he's now an old man that they're still walking in truth. And here again, walking in truth means in doctrine and in love for the brethren. They manifested that. And that is a great joy to me today as a minister who's now supposed to be retired to look back over my pastorate and I get letters. I've shared some of them with you. I have a letter. I haven't read that letter yet. It's in my file here, and I hope to get to it from someone that was led to the Lord during my ministry in Nashville. I wasn't even married then. I was just a single fellow. And they say we're still walking in the truth. They tell about how they're in a Bible church and how they're attempting to serve the Lord. Well, that brings joy to my heart. And when I hear of young ministers that used to be in my classes, and I share some of those letters with you of how they're standing for the truth, that brings joy to your heart. My daughter, I think, is like a great many other young people today. She thinks her dad is just a little old fogey, that I'm, you know, more or less of a back number. And I was rather amused. She went out to hear a young man that I had the privilege of teaching. In fact, all of his Bible training, he took under my teaching many years ago. But he's a young man. And my daughter and her husband went out to hear him. And she came back to tell me how wonderful he was and what a glorious message that he brought. And she wanted to tell me what the message was. And she gave it to me as if it was something I'd never heard before. It did sound strangely familiar to me, but I never said anything to my daughter. I just listened to it. And she says, wasn't that a wonderful message? And I said, yes. And then she made this statement. She says, you know, Dad, you may not be able to speak to the young people, but this young preacher, he's able to speak to young people. And they listened to him, and his church was filled with young people. Well, I couldn't help but smile. I didn't really want to tell her the truth, that the message that that fellow had given just happened to be one of my messages. I was glad that he gave it. And my daughter, I'm sure, has heard me give it. But See, it didn't mean anything when Dad gave it, because I'm an old fogey. But this young, sharp boy, he put in a lot of new words that young people use today that are actually not in my vocabulary. And of all things, it's just a brand new message. And do you think that I feel badly over that? You do not know what great joy that brought to me in my heart. And I know exactly how John felt. John says, I have no greater joy 
than to hear that my children walk in truth. Isn't that great? That's wonderful to find that out. And you can't help but rejoice in that. And especially when you have come to the sundown period of life, and you know that your future's not ahead of you, my future's back of me. And I rejoice in these that are coming along and to feel like, well, maybe I had a little part in the training of these young ones today and to know that young people are crowding in to hear them. My, that's a wonderful thing. Now let me move on down. Verse 5, Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatever thou doest to the brethren and the strangers. Now, this man here, Gaius, was evidently one of the children of John. I'm sure that is the thing that is true. And his conduct conformed to his doctrine. And it's marvelous when that takes place, you see. Now, he goes on to say here in verse 5, he commands Gaius from here on through verse 8, for having received and entertained the true teachers of the word. Let me draw the contrast. Second John, the apostle warns against receiving false teachers. Now, third John, he encourages the believers to receive the true brethren. And just because you've been deceived and stung for a while, may I say to you that that ought not to keep you from receiving the true brethren today. Now, you may have been deceived. I received letters like that also. And one lady who really supports our program in a very wonderful way, she's down on the church. And I found out recently why she's down on the church. Well, she went to a couple of churches. She's a very aggressive person herself. And she happens to be a widow. And the pastors at these two churches made a pass at her. She is a very attractive person. They made a pass at her. And believe me, that turned her off. And she has nothing to do. Well, frankly, I have urged her to get in a good Bible church where there are real men of God that won't be doing that sort of thing, I can assure her. That which is false, or that in which you've been taken in, and many of us have been, many of us have been disappointed and deceived by false brethren, don't let that deter us from supporting and giving our support to that which is, we believe, of the Lord today. Now, this woman gives support just to radio. Well, I think she's wrong. I don't think she's wrong in supporting radio. Don't always understand me. But I do feel that one or two sour experiences ought not to sour you against the church at all. Because many deceivers, John told us in the last epistle, have gone out in the world. And why not be like Gaius? Exercise a little spiritual discernment and don't support anything. And that includes the church and the radio until you are sure that this is of God that the Word of God is being given out, and that they love the brethren, and that they don't love the sistren too much. That's the thing that apparently this party encountered. Now, let me move on from that, because we're talking about things that are very practical today. We're really getting down to the nitty-gritty. 
right down where the rubber meets the road, right down where the ball hits the bat. That's the place. This is where we live and move and have our being today. Now he says, verse 6, "...who have borne witness of thy love before the church." Now, in John's church, these brethren would get back off of a trip. And I have a notion that when they came together for the purpose of worship, that John would say, well, I see brother so-and-so. He's been out evangelizing in a certain area, and we'd like to have a word from him. We'd like to have a report of how the Lord led him and how the Lord blessed him. And brother so-and-so would get up, and he'd give his report. And he said, and I came to this place, and there is a brother there by the name of Gaius as one of the choice servants of God. He opened his house, and he doesn't do it for everybody because he certainly examined me, and he made an inspection of me to make sure that I was teaching the Word of God, whether I believed the Word of God, whether I was walking in love or not. And he tested me, and he found out that I was, and he just opened up his heart and his home to me, and we had wonderful fellowship. Now, John's writing, guys, and he said, you know, I've heard that now from several, and I want you to know how it delights my heart. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers. Verse 6, who have borne witness of thy love before the church, whom, if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. Now, before, you remember in the second epistle, he says that if you bid Godspeed to these false teachers, you are a partaker with them. You're guilty. But now, if you help those who are giving out the Word of God, who do believe it, who are walking in love, he says here, you do well. This is something that actually you should be doing. Why? Verse 7, because for his name's sake they went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles. Now, he says, these brethren, they went forth, trusting the Lord. And you opened up your house and home to them. And they're genuine. They're real. And you receive them. Now he makes a tremendous statement here. He says, taking nothing from the Gentiles. And that, my friend, is another way of testing that which is really genuine or not. Is it a religious racket for money that's trying to get every Tom, Dick, and Harry to donate, to give to the cause? Or is it a work of the Lord that depends on the Lord's people? Now, John says these men that were true men, they would take nothing of the Gentiles. And he means unbelievers here. Those that are unbelievers. He would take nothing from them. And I've tried to make it clear on this broadcast. I don't always, I guess, make it clear, but I try to say that we're just asking believers to support the program. If you're listening in today and you're not a Christian, you may be a church member. Frankly, we don't mean you. We'd rather for you not to give. We hope you'll listen. We even hope you'll send and get the notes and outlines. But very frankly, friends, I don't really believe God can bless what an unbeliever gives. And even if you gave to us, I don't think God could use that. And that's the reason we encourage that. And 
This is, we believe, the scriptural method. These men went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles. They would not appeal to unbelievers to give to the Lord's work. And now I'm just speaking for myself, and I know there's a lot of disagreement, but I do not believe that unbelievers should be asked to support the Lord's work. I think that as the ark went through the wilderness, carried on the shoulders of priests, you couldn't even put it on a cart. God says the priests are to carry it. And God's priests are his believers. Every believer is a priest, and you and I are to carry the Lord Jesus Christ into this world today. And therefore, we do not ask unbelievers to give, but we do ask believers, and especially those that not only believe in Christ, but believe that we are giving out the Word of God today and believe that this is God's method. Those we do ask, we don't apologize for that because we believe the Lord's work is to be carried forward in that method. This is a tremendous little epistle. Now, verse 8. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. Now, in Third John, we have it divided here according to three individuals that are mentioned. These three individuals that are mentioned here are, first of all, Gaius, then Diotrephes, and then Demetrius. And we are going to see these three men. We've already looked at Gaius. He was an outstanding man of God. He was a friend of the apostle John, evidently a convert of John's. And John calls him the well-beloved. Not only was he beloved of John, but he was beloved by the church. And he was beloved by that group of men that were out in that day witnessing for Christ in the Roman Empire. And it wasn't easy. But when they got to the town where Gaius was and the church where he served, why, always Gaius opened his home and received them into his home, provided they were walking in light, which means they were walking in the doctrine of the apostles, and that they were walking in love. That is, love for the brethren. In other words, the doctrine and the conduct had to go together. Now, the very interesting thing is that this man would receive them. These were men who went out at great sacrifice, by the way. They didn't receive a salary. They didn't receive any remuneration. They went out trusting the Lord, and homes were open to them. And some places they were given a support, other places they were not. And they would not take anything from the Gentiles, that is, the unbelievers in that day. Now, John encourages. He says, we therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. In other words, you'd be a partner with these men if you opened your home to them, if you supported them, and helped them on their way. Now, there's quite a similarity between Second and Third John, as we've seen, but there is a great contrast. There is a canyon and a chasm that really divides them. In the second epistle, 
He warns this elect lady not to receive into her home, though she is generous and apparently wealthy, not to receive apostates, no matter how mealy-mouthed they are, no matter how they are able to use the vocabulary of the apostles, yet they did not believe in the deity of Christ. They did not believe in the inspiration of the Scriptures. And she's warned not to receive them, because if she does, she's a partner with them in their evil deeds. But if you receive the others, now, this might cause somebody just to shut their home and not receive these men at all. That is, their home would be shut up to all that would come in order to make sure. But John says, wait just a minute. If they are men walking in light, if they are men that are walking in love, and if they're men that have the life of God within them, and I think you can tell when they are speaking by the Holy Spirit, and I'm sure there was better discernment in the early church than there is in the church today. I'm confident of that. We may know more Bible than they did, but we certainly do not have the spiritual discernment that they did. Now, when they are distinguished as being men of God doing God's work, then they should be supported. In other words, you're to receive them, he says, that you might be fellow helpers to the truth. That is, to the fact that they help them along and they become partners with them in getting out the Word of God. This is the thing that John is saying here. Now, this is Gaius, and he's such a wonderful fellow, one of those wonderful saints in the early church. Now, you could wish that all of them were like that in the early church. But I'm sorry to have to report that they all weren't like that. Now we come to a brother, and his name is Diotrephes. And it said of him, verse 9, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Now, may I say that we are introduced to another type of individual from Gaius. And the thing that marks him actually is that he loved to have the preeminence. I think that Gaius is one that we can say of him that he is a real man of God and one that we can call him a real believer. But now Diotrephes, he is the dictator. Now, John wrote the penitude of the New Testament, as Moses wrote the Pentateuch of the Old Testament. John wrote the Gospel, Revelation, and three epistles. That makes five. He wrote a Pentateuch. And actually, as we have indicated, many expositors feel that John wrote his epistles last, and I rather concur in that. 
And if that's true, then this is his swan song. And it was written toward the close of the first century. And there had come many wonderful believers into the church. And to tell the truth, there were literally thousands, in fact, several million that had been brought into the truth. Now we want to know how they got along. How did they live? Were they all paragons of virtue? Were they all outstanding men of God? All wonderful, great men? How did they get along? Were they worthy followers of Christ? In turn, were they worthy examples? Now, the millions who turned to Christ in the first centuries, how did the average believer turn out? Well, there were some like Gaius, real men of God, men of courage, men who stood for the things of God, men that were outstanding. Now, here comes another man by the name of Diotrephes. He loved to have the preeminence. The thing that is said about him is this, that Diotrephes even opposed the apostle John. When John wrote to the church to receive certain men, and the next man that we see is an outstanding preacher of the gospel, one of those unknown saints of God. There are many of them like that today, named Demetrius. We're going to see him next time. But here, this man Diotrephes wouldn't receive him. And he's one of these fellows that, well, he wouldn't even open his home, as we have said before, and for the benefit of new listeners, the way that they entertain these traveling evangelists in that day. There were no Hilton hotels. There were no motels like Ramada Inn or Holiday Inn. There were miserable little inns here and there, but not in every place. And they were generally dirty and filled with fleas. And so these private homes were open, and Christians practice hospitality. And you'll find that Peter mentions it in 1 Peter 4, 9. He speaks of this thing, and it is something that was practiced. He says in 1 Peter 4, 9, "...use hospitality one to another without grudging." And Paul talked about it in 1 Timothy 5, 9, Romans 12, 13. Titus 1.8, I remember as a boy in the little town I lived in, there was no hotel or motel, and the preachers that came there were entertained in the homes. Now, Diotrephes opposed this. I don't know whether he was a local preacher or a layman, but he resisted all of these that John had recommended. And the reason is he loved to have the preeminence. His motto was to rule a ruin. His motto was he was going to have his own way, and it didn't make any difference what the result might be. And John had urged them, you ought to receive them. They're fellow helpers of the truth. And may I say to you, I think there's a real compulsion on a child of God today to support those who are giving out the Word of God. You've got a preacher that's doing that. You should support him. Therefore, here in the early church, they did. But here is this man, Diotrephes. 
He is the man that is filled with airs, we say today. He puts on airs. He is pretentious. He's vainglorious. He struts around as a peacock. He has an overweening ambition. He's vainglorious. He's puffed up. He's inflated like a balloon. This is the thing that characterized him. He was one that you had to receive him with a flourish of trumpets. He came in in a blaze of glory. That was this fellow here. That's Diotrephes. Now, I'm wondering, as I'm saying all of this, I'm wondering if you recognize this fellow here. Because if you want to know the truth, there are many of them in the churches today. You see, the thing that's brought against this man, actually, John will bring five charges against him. He was guilty of five charges. In other words, number one, he must occupy the leading place in the church. He actually refused to receive John. Number three, he made malicious statements against the apostles. And four, he refused to entertain the missionaries, the ones that were traveling through the country. And the reason, obviously, is he is the one who wanted to do the speaking and the teaching. And five, he excommunicated those who did entertain the missionaries. In other words... He wanted to be the first exalted ruler of the church. And here is a man that is self-opinionated, self-exalted, instead of being self-effacing. He's a self-made man. I'm sure that's what he'd claim to be instead of having the Holy Spirit make him over. He was self-sufficient. And I think he had self-admiration also. He was self-will. He was satisfied, he had self-confidence, and he felt like that he was the one that could do all of the teaching and do all of the preaching, and he didn't need them to come through. Now, may I say that in many churches today, there are men like that who want to run the church. And if you ask me, and I'm no longer a pastor, I'm out now, and I'm not looking for a church, and I can say exactly today what I think and what I know to be true. And I'm not speaking now of any theory whatsoever. But I happened over the years to have met men. They All of them put up a very pious front, but they tried to run the church. I've had them like that in churches I've served. And thank the Lord, I... Never had much trouble with those fellas, but sometimes it's a little click, and they'll do anything in order to rule. They'll rule a ruin, and I have watched them wreck church after church today when that little group or that individual, like Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence. Now, I'm going to say something that may be very harsh. There are many men, I'm sure they may mean well, but they enjoy leading in the church. They enjoy being up before a group of people. And for the most part, the ones I've met are almost Bible ignoramuses. They know very little about the Word of God. But they love to talk. And actually, their talk sometimes caused me to bow my head 
and shame when I'm sitting on the platform. Some of the things that they say and totally unscriptural, totally beside the point, dead as a doornail, and they wonder why their church is losing members. They wonder why today people are not coming. Well, friends, it's very evident why. There are a great many men who ought to keep quiet in church. Remember Paul said in Thessalonians, study to be quiet. Well, we today are trying to teach young people to talk. We ought to teach a lot of them to keep quiet because we've got a group of older ones today that talk too much. And my friend, we ought not to talk in church unless we've got something to say and have something from God to say. And this idea of wanting to be up front. Well, let me go all the way today. I don't know how many listeners I'm going to lose today talking about Diotrephes, but I've met Diotrephes and Mrs. Diotrephes. There are certain ones that ought not to be singing. There are certain people ought not to sing solos in the church. They don't bring any glory to God. And they pick sometimes songs that absolutely hurt the service rather than help the service. My friend, may I say to you today, because I may be talking to some of you like that, you ought to search your heart before God before you stand up in the church and begin to talk. And especially today, these soloists that like to make a little talk before they sing a song. And I've always discovered that the song they're going to sing, the message they bring before it, is just about as phony as anything possibly can be, because they're going to tell you why they're going to sing that song. Why not just sing the song? If it's got a message, then that's all the message that a soloist needs to give. Oh, may I say to you, I say this because I'm deeply concerned. I watched out here in Hollywood... I watched them make one scene. And friends, when I left, because I got tired of watching it, they'd already done it 15 times. And they were still working at it. And I thought when I left, oh, if God's people today in the church would work as hard to do anything that is going to be done in the service to bring glory to the name of Christ, It deserves the best you've got, my friend. And this idea of loving to have the preeminence. Really, why are you presiding? Why are you leading? Why do you sing? Do you love to have the preeminence? Are you doing this for the glory of God? And this can refer to the ministers too, by the way. All of us need to search our own heart. I told you that John would step on our toes. All of us, friends, all of us need to search our hearts. Why are we doing this? Are we doing it for the glory of God? Now, I'm not prepared to say whether Diotrephes was a believer or not. I do not know. But the thing that is said about him, he loved to have the preeminence. And it caused him to turn down all of these traveling evangelists and he would put out of the church anyone else who would entertain them or offer them hospitality. And this was a very, of course, tragic thing, as there was going through the country in that day many very wonderful Bible teachers. 
Now, John says, this man who loved to have the preeminence among you, one of the things that he would do, he'd engage in vicious gossip against John and the other apostles and others because he wanted to be number one. He was a self-seeking, self-important, and a self-elected official of the church. And he was one that, woe unto you if you attempted to oppose him. And I don't know whether he was the pastor or not. I think he's a layman. I sure feel sorry for his pastor because I'm of the opinion he tried to keep him under his thumb because he wanted to preside. He wanted to be the one to be heard. There are a great many folk like that today. And my whole point is this. Certainly we need somebody to preside. We need somebody to sing a solo. We need somebody to teach the Word. We need many. But search your heart before you do that, because you can wreck a church if you are one that is like Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminent. You love to be in that position. Ms. McGee and I were ministering in a certain church, and I won't tell you where, but when we left, she said concerning the man who presided, and they did not have a pastor in the church at the time, she said, you know, he certainly did enjoy presiding, didn't he? And I said, yes, he loved it. And I'm just wondering whether they really are seeking for a pastor with that man presiding, because he's not only presiding, he was killing the church. The attendance was way down, and I feel sorry for any man that comes there as pastor, because he'll certainly have trouble with that individual. Now, John says he's going to deal with that. In verse 10 now of Third John, he writes this, "...wherefore, if I come..." And I don't think it's the if of doubt, as we shall see at the end of the epistle. John intended to come, and he was coming. But we never know what a day will bring forth. And John says, if I come, in the sense that something should come up, something should happen, I'm unable to make the trip. But his intentions were to come. There's no doubt in his mind about that, as we shall see at the end. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, that is, Diotrephes, I will remember his deeds which he doeth. Now, what are some of the deeds that he's doing? You see, Christianity, the important word is truth, and truth manifests itself in love. And it's just as simple as that and as important as that. Now, Diotrephes, who loved to have the preeminence, and that, by the way, is a characteristic of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is meekness, and Diotrephes was a dictator. And by the way, I was looking last time for a name for Gaius. He's the delightful brother, the delightful brother. Here's a dictator, and the next man is going to be dependable. But this is the dictator. Now, meekness does not necessarily mean weakness. In fact, it does not. It could be cowardice. Someone has said silence is golden, but sometimes it's yellow. And it's too bad there weren't those in the church to speak out against this. Now, Moses was considered a meek man. But you remember when he got up and 
talked to the children of Israel. He didn't sound like a meek man according to our notion of meekness. He spoke right out. And you remember, the Lord Jesus was meek and lowly, but he went in and cleansed the temple. And that's the reason I feel like that I should speak out on this because nobody else speaks along these lines today as far as I know. And the thing that's hurting our churches, somebody should speak out today and say, look, brother, sit down. You're spoiling things. You ought not to be trying to love the preeminence all the time. You should learn to be meek and let others speak out. Well, John says, if I come, I'll remember his deeds which he doeth. He exhibits that which is not the mark of a believer by any means. And he exhibits that which reveals that he apparently didn't have the truth. And notice what he does. Prating against us with malicious words. Now, he was attempting to absolutely destroy the effectiveness of the apostles and especially of John. And John says, when I get there, I'm going to deal with him. I'm going to speak out against him. I'm going to let it be known that this man is actually using malicious words. Now, I had a man that called me some time ago. He actually was a man who was a member of my former church. And he called me and he says, I want you to forgive me. The man was weeping. He said, I said a lot of things about you. In fact, he went so far as to say that I left the church in debt. And I never have served a church yet that I ever left it in debt. fact of the matter is, I left a tremendous reserve fund. But he, along with a few others, just didn't mention that. And as a result, why the false report went out. And he called me weeping. He says, I ask your forgiveness. I said, you don't have to ask me to forgive you. Ask the Lord. He says, well, I've already repented and talked to him. Well, I said, it'd be nice now if you would tell these people that you gave the wrong report to, you'd give them the true report now. I said, you don't need to call me about it at all. Now, he was a diatrophies. He enjoyed presiding. He enjoyed having his way. And the day has come, apparently a change has come over him. He's in another church today, and I understand, doing a good job. And I rejoice in that. But he was a diatrophies. And I have always felt that I should have dealt with him more severely than I did when I was there. Because John says, I intend to deal with this, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and he forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Imagine this fellow. He is excommunicating anybody that would entertain one of these men. What a horrible picture this is. And if you want to wreck a church, you just have a man like this or a little group like this, and friends, you'll wreck the church. That is the sad situation today. There are too many diatrophies that are in existence. And John says, I'm going to deal with that when I get there. John, remember, you can call him apostle of love if you want to, but the Lord Jesus called him a son of thunder. And I think they had a regular thunderstorm when John arrived at this church. 
because he's going to deal with diatrophies. And it's too bad that other churches don't deal with diatrophies because of the fact they'll wreck a church if they're permitted to go on, permitted to continue. Now, will you notice we have come now to the third brother. He's a lovely fella, and he is the man that you just can't help but rejoice in him. He's the dependable brother, one of those unknown saints. Listen to this, verse 12. Demetrius hath good report of all men, and of the truth itself. Here's a man sound in the faith. Yea, and we also bear witness. And in the mouth now of two witnesses, the thing is established. But Demetrius, he has a good report of all man, and the truth bears witness to him, where he's sound in the faith. And John says, I bear witness. And ye know that our witness is true. This church knew that John bore a true witness. Now, may I say, Demetrius is obviously one of these wonderful saints of God that this man, Diotrephes, had actually shut out of the church. May I say to you, this man, Demetrius, we have only one verse about him here That's all we know. He's never mentioned again in Scripture. Let me just give this. While there's only one verse about Demetrius, it gives us an insight into the Christian character of this noble saint of God. We cannot identify him with any other of the same name. His name means belonging to Demeter. Ceres, that is. We get our word cereal from that, the god of agriculture. And that identifies him as a convert from paganism. He evidently was brought up in a pagan home, worshipped the gods of the Greeks and Romans. And this man, converted, now goes around teaching, and he adorned the doctrine of Christ. Others testified to his character, and he was true to the doctrine of Scripture. Now, here are the three men. They passed before us in this little epistle. Christianity was on trial in the first century. Two of these men that are mentioned in this epistle, they're genuine. They're real. They're wonderful children of God. One delightful brother. Another dependable brother. Well, one of them, dictator, he was a phony. May I say to you, the gospel walked in shoe leather in the first century in the Roman Empire. Now, come back to verse 12 again. It's all we have about Demetrius, and we want to see something about this man. Now, will you notice, Demetrius, I'm reading, hath good report of all men and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear witness, and ye know that our witness is true. Now, this is evidently the man that John mentions, and at least he's among the group of men that John mentions that Diotrephes would not receive. He was one of the many itinerant preachers who went about in that first century, humble, unknown, and unsung. He was a member of that great army that carried the gospel throughout the Roman Empire so that it could be said 
that the whole world had heard the gospel. And that actually was true, and it means the whole Roman world of that day. They were the civilized world. It was entirely evangelized, and they were pushing out beyond its borders when the apostasy began to set in, when there came in men like Diotrephes. Now, will you notice about this man? He's one of these shining lights, then, of the New Testament. And again, may I say, this is the only reference to him. One of these humble saints. And around us today, there are multitudes of people like that. They're not a Diotrephes, and they're not even a Gaius, an outstanding Christian. They're just an humble saint of God. But they're doing their thing, the thing God's called them to do, and in an humble way. Maybe this woman I heard about teaching a little Sunday school class. She teaches the handicap. Huh, how wonderful. Nobody knows about her. Nobody's ever given her a loving cup. Ought to, but they never have. She doesn't want it. She'd be embarrassed if you gave her one. How many saints of God... They are like that today, that God is using in a small way. They're not trying to be the chief soloist. They just sing in the choir. They don't try to be the main speaker. They don't want to preside. They don't want to be chairman of every board. They're just willing to fade into the woodwork of the church. But they are one of the pillars of the church. They're supporting the work. And they're encouraging the preacher. I think one of the most wonderful members I ever had was a dear little lady came in every Sunday morning on a cane. And she never missed a Sunday morning. There's always something nice that she had to say. Always encouraging the preacher. She told me one time, she says, I think that's my job to do that. Says, that's all I can do. Well, she did other things too, I'd have you know. But the church is filled with wonderful saints of God today. And when I mentioned last time about these diatrophies around, don't get the impression that everybody's a diatrophies in the church. Thank God they're very few. And it's a good thing they're very few. Here it's two to one. I think it's more than that, a hundred to one today. Generally, they are around, but thank God for these folks. Now, the tense that John used here indicates that Demetrius had a good reputation in the past, he still had a good reputation, and this was over a long period of time. Time-tested faith, Demetrius the dependable. The church knew him as a man of God. You might deceive the church, but he was tested by the truth. He measured up to the definition of a believer, and John knew him and agreed. Three witnesses. He adorned the doctrine. Now, the real test of the Christian life, you see, is not on the arena, backed by applause. It's not before the crowd in the Colosseum. There were five million martyrs who bear testimony to the truth of the gospel in the first three centuries. They laid down their life for Christ. But did you know that there were many more million? than that who bear witness by the faithful lives they live each day. Nothing spectacular, nothing sensational, nothing outstanding. They're just living for God. They have a purpose. They have a direction. 
and they have a thrilling experience. After World War II, there were the English boys who wrote the book, Look Back in Anger, and it revealed a bottomless pessimism, no hope for the future. And this has produced the beetle-brain mob of youth today with no direction. A group told me in Athens, I say a group, three of them, they wanted to drop out of society into the decadent first century with its low morals and the erosion of character. There came the message from God that he gave his son, and there were multitudes who came in contact with him, and they got involved. And may I say to you, you may not find their names in the yellow pages, but you'll find them in the Lamb's Book of Life. They live for God, unknown to the world, and they died unknown to the world, but they are known to God, and their names are inscribed on high. Now will you notice, verse 13, I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee. John, frankly, though he wrote the gospel to John in the book of Revelation, two of the longest books in the New Testament, yet John very frankly said that he'd much rather tell it to you than write it to you. And he says here, verse 14, now the last verse, "...but I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face." And someday that'll be true for you and me we'll be able to speak face-to-face with John. I want to talk to him about these little books that he wrote, and there are a lot of questions I want to ask him. We shall speak face-to-face. But, of course, he's referring to the fact that he's going to come, and he'll speak face-to-face to Diotrephes. I feel sorry for old Diotrephes. I'm sure he got it in that day. And Demetrius and Gaius, those wonderful men of God, In that day, he says, But I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee. Our friends greet thee. Greet the friends by name. Isn't that a lovely way to end it? He says, I want you to know that our friends that are here with me, they greet you. And will you greet the friends by name? Go and say to Demetrius, say, Demetrius, I have a message from John. (laughs) He wanted to greet you. He'd be coming our way before long. You see, the gospel walked in shoe leather in the first century in the Roman Empire. And today, it needs to get down where the rubber meets the road in our day. In spite of any energy shortage, We need to get it out on the highways and byways of life. Until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved.